May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Religion, religion can be dangerous. Why do I say this? I say this because anyone can take one piece of scripture, just one little piece of scripture and use it to vilify, exclude, oppress, or worse, to murder another person or a whole group of people. And we have seen this, of course, in the history of humankind. While all major religions of the world, Judaism, Christianity, Buddhism, Islam, all of them espouse love and compassion at the core, they have also been used to prop up our insecurities, our rejection of others, and our hate. So we can, we can scapegoat anyone, and we do this when we feel powerless. Christians should never be haters. Amen. Normally when I preach on the reading from Acts, the conversion of Saul on the road to Damascus, I am caught up in the beauty and the real transformative power that is the Spirit and the risen Christ to push Saul, who later becomes the Apostle Paul, into a conversion he never expected. I love this passage of Scripture because that was my experience. I was once a non-believer who, like Paul, did a complete 180 to become, well, what I am now. And if you would have told my 20-year-old self, a theater major at UCI with a track to Broadway, that one day I would be a Christian and a priest in a denomination with a funny-sounding name, the Episcopal Church, what is that? What is that? I didn't even know. I would have said that the body snatchers had come and taken the real Jennifer away and left a pod Jennifer in its place. However, I remember thinking then, my best friend growing up was a, was a strong Christian, and I remember saying to her that I don't think I'm good enough to be a Christian because my worldview of Christianity at the time was one of exclusion and negativity, and Christians were the ones that seemed so judgmental. There was no way I could ever pass the Christian litmus test. Why, why would I want to believe in a theology that told me that all weren't welcome or loved by our Creator? Now, I'm not saying that all Christians believed this, but this is what I perceived based on the Christian media of the day many years ago. But things changed, and one day I believed. And I was completely blown away at the thought that I was actually loved. I was actually loved by God, our creator, and I was worthy of that love. And it was the spirit and the risen Christ, I believe, who came to me and opened my eyes to this. Jesus became real for me that day. So I believe in the power of change and conversion and transformation. I believe our hearts and worldviews can change. I love this passage from Acts 
the conversion of Saul on the road to Damascus because it informs everything that I believe, it informs everything that I do, and why I'm in ministry. But this past week, there were some really hateful events with the synagogue shooting in Poway, and then there was a couple of days later the arrest of a young man in Long Beach who wished to target houses of worship and other gatherings. And it made me look at this conversion of Saul in a different way. I saw the murderous, hate-filled side of Saul who was stuck on destruction, on the rules and power of the religious elite, those who say they know who God is and what God demands. Often these demands that we say that's God's will often can be linked to a power structure that benefits some over others. So that's why I say we have to be careful because religion can be dangerous. It is, of course, absolutely true that there are moral components to Scripture that help us live a more joyful and beautiful life as individuals and in community, and that Scripture gives us a roadmap, gives us rails to keep us on a path of salvation. And Jesus tells us what this path to salvation is. He says it over and over and over again in many ways, love God and love your neighbor. These are the two most important laws. Well, I participated this week in the Huntington Beach Interfaith Council's annual prayer breakfast. Represented at this breakfast were many other religious leaders and followers of other denominations, spiritual groups, who make the effort to come together to show a sense of unity against religious intolerance that perpetrates hate-filled acts. And the speaker was professor and activist James Lawson, who is a well-known African-American civil rights activist and teacher who espoused nonviolence within the civil rights movement in the 1960s with Martin Luther King Jr. He's now 90 years old. And he said many things that stuck out for me, but the one nugget from his speech that I felt compelled to preach on today was that Christians have a great responsibility to disavow religious intolerance. And I have to say that I had been thinking about this already because last Sunday we had a reading from John that said that after the crucifixion, the disciples were locked in the house where they had met for fear of the Jews. And a parishioner came up to me after the service to say that hearing that made her upset because of the recent synagogue shooting. And I hadn't thought about it that way. But she was right. When we talk about the Jews as the other, the murderous other, the ones as a whole people who killed Jesus, taking scripture out of its context and history is doing scripture, Christianity, and the world a disservice. The 19-year-old shooter in Poway was brought up in a religious environment, was a professed Christian who did this heinous attack because in his manifesto he wrote, Jews killed Jesus. And so this retaliation in a 2019 synagogue service was an act that he believed would bring him salvation. 
this act of revenge and retaliation. Now I'm going to give his religious community the benefit of the doubt and say and hope that this is not what he was taught as a child in the church. But when we hear in scripture about the Jews, which we will hear in the next few weeks through the Gospel of John, the readings in the Gospel of John, the Jews did this or the Jews did that, creating an us and them argument, we have to be careful. There were many, many divisions we have to remember in first century Palestine between different Jewish or, uh, sects, S-E-C-T-S, and between the Romans and these different parts of Judaism. There was a diversity of thought within Judaism, and they were fighting with each other as well. Not everyone agreed. And the Romans, they just didn't want anyone causing problems. Scholars also believe that the writer of the Gospel of John is writing to a Gentile audience and not a Jewish audience at the time, long after the disciples were gone, when divisions were even stronger. The bottom line, of course, is we must remember and teach our children that first off, Jesus was a Jew. His original 12 disciples were Jews. And that ultimately, ultimately, it is not the whole Jewish people, past, present, and future, who are to be blamed for the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, did the religious authorities, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, have it out for Jesus? Yes. He was, in their mind, leading the other Jews astray. Because those who began to follow Jesus were also Jews. There was no separate religion of Christianity. Jesus and his followers were just another sect of Judaism at the time. The Roman soldiers nailed Jesus to the cross because he was a political dissident. And to the Romans, this was a frequent occurrence. There were crosses on the hillside with people being crucified all over the place. But for Christians over the centuries and for people in our society today to assign responsibility to the Jewish people, past, present, and future is misguided, it is misinformed, and it is wrong. So Saul realizes that he is misguided and wrong on the road to Damascus. As a Jew, he suddenly believes to be that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah that was promised to the people of Israel. He doesn't then turn around and start murdering the other side, those who don't believe as he does. And as we learn from the crucifixion, neither did Jesus. Jesus does not retaliate. Jesus transforms. Saul becomes reborn. He's given a new name, Paul. And he preaches and teaches and espouses the transformative power of the resurrected Christ because that, in his mind, is what will save the world. And for us, in our context today, the saving of the world means peace, justice, love, compassion, and healing. Our souls are saved when we live for peace justice, love, compassion, and healing. So we've just come out of the holiest week of the year, Holy Week. And Holy Week is all about, of course, going through darkness, going through betrayal, deceit, 
fear, violence, to a new creation of hope and light and wonder and mystery and love. Because God is a God of transformation. God is a God, we learn today, of conversion. God brings us out of bondage into freedom, out of darkness into light, making possible the impossible, finding a way where there is no way, chipping away at the barriers around our hearts so that we too can allow a transformation of how we think and feel and react in the world around us. Easter also tells us that when the stone is rolled away, revealing an empty tomb, that God is too big and too vast to be contained by the limits we put upon God, and that the miracles of Jesus tell us and show us that God's love for God's creation cannot be contained. One of the vows we also make at Easter when we renew our baptismal vows is to respect the dignity of every human being. And we say, yes, we will do this. We will with God's help. Because we are human, we make mistakes, and we do need God to help us treat everyone else with respect and dignity. And it's in our houses of worship where we learn to do this. It's in church where we learn to do this, where our children remember to do this. We should be remembering in church, preaching and teaching and, and uh, treating each other with respect and dignity and how we must treat others with respect and dignity. Because in worship, we are all leveled equal. All of us kneel or stand at the communion rail as equals. I was moved by Rabbi Israel Goldstein of the synagogue in Poway, who said, and I'm paraphrasing, that the goal of the shooter was to create terror and to instill fear, to make us want to stay away from our houses of worship. And he said, we shouldn't stay away. We should fill the pews. We should fill the chairs to protest the darkness. We should all come together to fill our churches as much as possible to protest against the darkness. And I was, I loved that image. I was overtaken by this image of all of us calling everyone to fill up the seats, to worship in protest of the darkness and of hate. And if we could all come together to do this, challenge our communities to do this, to protest the darkness by showing up and filling our pews, to say that we're not afraid of darkness because the light that we all believe in and preach and teach is more powerful and more transformative than the darkness and hate. Saul had a big conversion. I had a pretty big one myself, but, but there are also many conversions every day that can affect our hearts. Every day conversions where light dispels darkness so how about this? You say to your friends, when they ask you, why do you come to church? You say, I come to church to protest the darkness of the world. I come to church to be reminded that I am to respect the dignity of every human being. I come to church because my priest in charge says That although there are religions and denominations and spiritual communities that don't come to God in exactly the same way, that if we all come together as communities of light, then our houses of worship 
together can transform the world. Now that's not a bad mission project. This does not make worshiping on a Sunday a thing that we just do because we're supposed to. This gives us a purpose as a worshiping community. This makes worship on a Sunday the most important thing that we all can do. Amen. Amen.